Welcome to Mox on the Mic, your exclusive look into all things Chattanooga athletics. Here's your host, Chris Goforth. Welcome in this week to Mox on the Mic. It is a special edition of Mox on the Mic this week. We're celebrating 50 years of Title IX with the Chattanooga Mox, and we're going to go all the way back to the very beginning. Uh, Sharon Fanning, who was uh, really the the women's second women's basketball coach here at UTC, but she was the one that really kind of put women's basketball on the map here. And then, of course, the Hall of Fame coach, Jim Foster, will join us. We'll get his take and then a little look ahead to the future. Laura Heron, uh, the senior women's at, um, administrator here at UTC who oversees kind of the Title IX compliance for Chattanooga, as well as all of the women's sports. We'll get Laura's thoughts on where we may be headed. Glad to have you with us this week, and certainly glad we can celebrate 50 years of Title IX in women's athletics at Chattanooga. So to start us off this week, let's visit with former Chattanooga women's basketball coach, Sharon Fanning. Coach, if you can, um, what was women's athletics like and speaking specifically of women's basketball, but women's athletics in general, what was it like before title nine came into existence? From everything that I had heard in those years before it was through physical education departments, most of the time, and there weren't um, full-time coaches. Uh, it was more, people who taught at the university and then, or someone on the outside, but it was part-time positions and very few full-time positions until Title IX, you know, became a part uh, of, I guess, everyone's program that was a state-funded program, a government-funded program. Uh, but then that, that made a big change, a big transition for all of us after uh, that came into effect. Now, your arrival at, at UTC and Title IX, uh, how many years had it been into effect when you when you came? Well, Title IX, I'm, I'm thinking in 72 is when it, of course, became and uh, went into effect. I was a freshman in the fall of 71. We had basketball uh, my freshman year, my sophomore year, my junior year, we did not. And then we had it again my senior year. Um, all four years, I was able to play volleyball. And those are the only two women's sports that I know, you know, for sure. I can remember Betty Robinson, y'all. I mean, a lot of people would remember that name from Ultawai. She played, I think, on our men's tennis team when she went to UTC. And it was probably the University of Chattanooga at the time. Uh, and then, of course, later on, we added several other sports. But I'm not sure why we did not have a program during my junior year. Uh, I guess the, the understanding maybe is that, that the women that were coaching it, uh, they were having to coach maybe the two sports and it was not funded well enough uh, for them to do that. But then my senior year, Grace Keith was hired. And to my knowledge, that was the first conversation that UTC had had through athletics to a coach for women's basketball before it was out of physical education. But now Coach Wilkes um, instigated that conversation and she was part-time. And then when I came back after grad school, it was in 76, then I was the first full-time coach at UTC. So I think, you know, the Title IX, passing of Title IX got things started 
but uh, it, it took time to get full-time coaches as well as other sports added. So who were the coaches your freshman and sophomore years? This Morgan uh, was a physical education teacher. Uh, Jean Biddle was also in physical education. And Jean, I think, was the person that maybe was in charge uh, of the communication there with it. I'm not sure. I, I heard years ago that the budget was maybe 500 bucks. And um, I know that all we got from the university was a reversible jersey, a, a top, and then we bought everything else. To my knowledge, there were no uh, overnight trips. Um, and I, I, I'm thinking that probably my senior year, we did go to a state tournament uh, in Knoxville. And I think I may have gotten five bucks for a meal at some point during that time. But uh, I remember my, my freshman year, in fact, it, had, it was probably my freshman year. And we played three games in one day in a tournament. And it was a state tournament. And it was at Tennessee. It was, uh, I guess they used a couple of gyms, but we were playing in the physical education uh, area and uh, had three games in one day. And in fact, I think uh, probably beat Tennessee. Phyllis Peck made a, uh, she had a hook shot, I think, <laughs> at the end, and we beat them by one or two. And that's my best recollection of those three games in one day. But I don't, I don't think that we spent the night. And I think that there were very few games. In uh, the volleyball tournament, I do remember spending the night in a Memphis tournament. It was a state tournament. Uh, but those were few and far between, and the, there weren't as many games on the schedule at that point. There, before the 70s, um, I mean, I was a freshman in 71, uh, there was Ms. Rodman. In fact, Miriam Rodman was the, a friend that played at East Ridge, and her mother, I think, coached a team at some point, she had said earlier. But I think everything like that, it was, it was either volunteer or it was through physical education, and um, apparently it was – until Grace Keith was hired by Coach Wilkes, that was the first time that the athletic department had been involved with any kind of hiring. You've talked a little bit about the travel and, and kind of playing the games. What was practice like for you guys then? Um, we were in the auxiliary gym for the most part, and uh, men's basketball was in the main area. And there weren't other areas on campus in order to, you know, to practice. So that was it. But our volleyball was in the auxiliary gym and basketball was in the auxiliary gym as well, unless we worked at different hours to get on the main court, either before or after the men. Was it hard to have a, like a set practice schedule back then? If you wanted to use the auxiliary gym and wrestling was usually going on but they would, you know, pull the curtains down there. And so we would be in the auxiliary gym on one end. Wrestling would be in their area and men's basketball in the other area. So we, we could have a set practice time. It's just that if you wanted to be on the main court, then you would have to alter that a bit. But as far as it's just a set time, we could practice the same time each day. It would just have to be uh, in the alternate practice facility. How much credit does Harold Wilkes deserve for – kind of getting the ball rolling at UTC? You know, I think that, I mean, Coach Wilkes was great to work with. And I, he, he used to say I would follow him all over the building when I was, you know, working there 
to, to try to ask him questions and to get money or, you know, for a project going on. And, but he had such a good sense of humor. And uh, it was difficult, I think, for any athletic director at that particular time because, you know, football, maybe men's basketball, of course, were two sports that generated the revenue and it had to carry the load for everyone. And now you're talking about adding women's sports and in basketball and volleyball in particular, there were more people involved, uh, not quite the numbers with the baseball or, you know, wrestling and definitely not football. But, you know, now the athletic directors are saying, you know, OK, where are we going to get this money? And I think they they had to really search and figure out ways and, and communicate in the in the community with people uh, to try to help budgets, because I don't think anyone well, I know from my perspective, it, it wasn't a, an opportunity with Title IX to decrease anything for the men, but it was to provide an opportunity for the women that had not been there. And that's the way I always tried to, to look at it. Uh, it's, it's not something that you want to take away from something else, but you just want to provide opportunity. And I'm thankful for that because otherwise I would have never had a full-time job in all probability, uh, if it was just left to, you know, to maybe they'll start a program someday. So Title IX was very beneficial for opportunities for a lot of women and, and young girls looking to play sports that never had that opportunity before. Were there a lot of naysayers back then? Did you, did you hear that kind of feedback, that kind of talk that why are we doing this? Why are we putting money towards female athletics? I think everyone did anywhere it, it, because it, it challenged the budget. The budget, you had to scramble to make budget anyways, and everyone trying to, you know, be at the top of the conference. So, I mean, it was a great challenge, and um, it, it was just – that's just part of the process. I think that it's ongoing. It, even through the transition in the last, you know, 50 years, uh, you still have situations where people are trying to figure out how are we going to make ends meet, and. And although we've progressed tremendously, uh, it's still a challenge when budgets are concerned and the bottom line is a concern. What was available for female athletes at that time? I mean, it sounds like if you were a high school a female athlete in high school, basically you were going to be a PE teacher. Is that pretty much what the options were for you? You know, I think in the 70s, you know, I was going through physical education. And so I was going to be a teacher. That was, you know, my aspiration. And so this coaching piece, uh, as I saw it progress through, you know, as I was going through college, and then I was hoping that I could teach as well as coach. And so to be a full-time coach uh, when I got out of grad school, that was a tremendous opportunity that I did not visualize while I was going through college because it was not there or, you know, I didn't know about it. And, and really probably in 99% of the schools, it was not there. It was only through teaching. Uh, but then as the coaching positions became available, um, I think in seven and 76 is probably when a lot of coaches became full-time coaches. It seems as though, you know, it was at Tennessee at that point, because I, when I was in grad school, Pat, some at, uh, was a uh, graduate student as, as well as I, I was a graduate student, but she was a year ahead of me. And so she was still teaching physical education as well as coaching. And then in the 76 
that's when the Title IX sort of kicked in from a full-time position in a lot of schools. And then the conferences, of course, un until we went from AIW to NCAA, you know, probably in the 82 timeframe is when a lot of the conferences really picked up and embraced uh, your women's sports. But it was progressive. When I started coaching, I had no assistance. There, I don't know that there were any scholarships the first year. The budget was very, you know, I don't know if it was a thousand, two thousand bucks or something like that for everything. But it was, um, it was just minimal and no scholarships. Then you had one scholarship, then you had two, but you had to break those up and divide them, you know, amongst all your players. And then there was a graduate assistant that helped, or it was a part-time assistant at the time is what they call it. And then there was a full-time assistant. So, you know, I was, I guess I was very fortunate, you know, to see this progress from its infancy where there was, you know, first full-time coach into not the budget and then how it progressed at the time I was there at UTC in 11 years. And then, you know, the, the, the rest of the year seeing it, uh, in the SEC and all it, it was really it's really been amazing uh, and it's been a blessing to be a part of that growth and to see the opportunities that now exist for uh, all of our women's sports you know it was your generation of coaches that in the women's game that I get for a lack of a better word coach just wouldn't be denied uh, refused at times to maybe refuse to go away silently uh, with people like yourself, like, like Pat summit, um, that really kind of help elevate this game to what we know today, isn't it? In AIW, which was our governing organization before we went with NCAA, I can remember our president getting up one year at the convention and saying, be careful what you wish for, you know, as, as we start to make a transition, if, if we do go that way, because for a couple of years, there were tournaments, I think, in both AIW and NCAA. But eventually, AIW realized that NCAA was going to be uh, the financial you know, piece that could help uh, promote women's sports in a, in a very different way than AIW did. But they, you know, they said, hey, it's going to be different and it's become, going to become more businesslike, I suppose. And of course, that's that's the way it has become. But, you know, to see the number of women and men now that are involved in all of our sports and the opportunities that you can make a living. I think when a lot of us were starting, uh, you know, it, it was very minimal. And, and from my perspective, you know, a lot of men that were coaching in high school, because I, Doug Moser is one of, uh, you know, a first male assistant that I hired. And, you know, it was, it, we had to make a change in order for him to make more money at this, at the job at UTC than he was making in high school. And, but as we've evolved, then now it's something that, that anyone would be, uh, you know, want to be a part of relative to the opportunities to what you would say, make a living coaching in women's sports. But back in the day, it was a, a challenge and you had to really love it and want to be a part of it uh, in order to, to stay, stay with coaching at any sport, you know, in, in any level. In women's basketball. Was that always the plan for you when you went away to graduate school? Was the idea, when did the idea become, hey, I think I want to come back to Chattanooga and, and be the head coach? You know, I, I grew up in East Lake and my parents owned a little mom and pop restaurant for 50 years. And so I sort of evolved with it really. When I played basketball, I played basketball, volleyball, and fast pitch softball. And 
I knew I was going to teach probably by the time I, when I was in the fifth grade, I wanted to be a teacher. And so as I went through my undergraduate work, then teaching physical education uh, was what I was preparing for. Uh, the coaching piece just, you know, like I say, it just became a part of it. Uh, it I evolved with it. And I didn't know those opportunities would exist at that particular time. So as I went to grad school, you know, and, and then played sports there, and then the job opened at UTC. So I was really blessed with just at the right time, I guess, uh, in the right place. But Chattanooga's home. I mean, it was very, very special to me and uh, a very special opportunity to come back to where, you know, the, the, the program that laid the foundation for me professionally to be at UT Chattanooga. And so I felt like I had a great undergraduate uh, program there and was prepared to teach and prepared to coach. Uh, but uh, it just it just happened that it opened up when I was coming out of grad school and uh, a tremendous opportunity. And I am truly blessed and appreciate UTC for everything, the, the foundation of my education and the start of my professional career. How tough was it to leave when that opportunity came um, in the late 80s, I guess? You know, when I went to Coach Wilkes and I just cried. I had, I had actually uh, interviewed a couple of years before uh, at North Carolina. And I know that it, that first part of it was a – that first interview was a transition uh, of just going away to think that I would leave, leave home and leave family – and I had interviewed again at, at Northwestern and, uh, at, you know, the, at both of those times it was, it was, I don't know if it was scary. I had been in Chattanooga all my life and hadn't been away from home. So um, definitely didn't want to leave. I felt like I would be the Margaret Wade of Chattanooga. You know, Margaret Wade was at Delta State all those years. And I thought that that's where I would be uh, when Kentucky, you know, that opportunity was available. Um, you know, I had been involved with USA Basketball. Uh, I don't, it was just one of those things, the timing. I, I, I went to Coach Wilkes, and, I, I mean, I cried. And, and of course, he said, you've got to go. And, um, you know, this is a decision you have, you have to make. And so we went through it together. But um, all I can say is I'm just thankful for Coach Wilkes, for all the coaches who were there that I learned from. You know, when I, when I started at UTC, uh, so many of the men's coaches through the years, Coach Shumate was there at the time, and Coach Ford had just, you know, he had retired from the coaching piece, and Coach Arnold, uh, you know, who followed, and just those guys were so helpful, and that's just what I grew up with, and I'm so thankful and blessed to have been a part of that and appreciate everyone's help along the way. You mentioned the postseason tournaments um, a few minutes ago. At one time, the I guess the the crowning achievement, right, was was a state championship in women's college basketball, right? That was it through at, at the beginning with AIAW, and we had the Tennessee TCWSF, I think Tennessee College Women's Sports Foundation or Federation, whatever. But we were within our state, and uh, and they had at one point they had small college and they had large college. But I can't remember all the different changes, but probably in that 76 to 80 time frame, it changed names. But uh, I can remember participating in the, in the state tournament, and it was probably my senior year at UTC. 
And uh, I can remember I was going down the court and I went behind my back or something, laid it up. But after it was over, uh, I, I got an MVP thing for the tournament. But this little man came up to me with a, a little, it was like a Hershey's box of chocolates or something like that. He said, I've never seen a woman, you know, dribble behind her back or something like that. And gave me that little box of chocolates and, uh, and then, then a little trophy for it. It was very, very tiny, but it was recognition. It was, you know, something that we were a part of, but it was a different level. It, it was a different level and you played multiple games in a day. And so times have definitely changed, but uh, it was a great opportunity at the time that we played. So what's next for the women's game? Where does it go? Where's it headed? We hope that it continues to progress as far as opportunities, but uh, you know, I just think you see the level of play changing every year. There's more and more young girls that are involved. They have more opportunities to learn during the summer to play with all the AAU and you know the other teams that they play with over the summer. Um, bigger and stronger, faster, more opportunities within the WNBA and overseas. Those opportunities progress through the years. I can remember an Olympic trials in 76. There might have been 100 girls at the tryout, maybe 30 of them were over 6'3". And then four years later, you go and there's three or 400 girls and probably several hundred are over, you know, 6'3", 6'4". Now you have the six, you know, the kids that are dunking, the 6'3", six, 6'4", six, guards that handle the ball like a, you know, a 5'7", five, 5'8", five, guard used to. And uh, so... Everything's progressing. And I, I think that we saw a change probably when the Olympics were in Atlanta, what, 96. And, and, and then the television aspect of things, I think, a, and I would say this, a man could watch a, a women's basketball game. And if you like men's basketball, probably in 60, 70, something like that, where there was a lot of execution in terms of fundamentals and, and shooting and all, I think the men could really identify and say, hey, that's good basketball. It's not just girls basketball, as, as it was called at one point. It was, you know, these women are playing basketball at a very high level. Then you had the television matchups of the Tennessee Connecticut for a while, and it just gave more, gave more visibility. But I think that, that it's appreciated. And, and in all the sports, um, you see a lot more daddies involved, it seems like, with the young kids. And uh, so I, I think it's just going to continue to progress. We're I think we're all hoping that uh, from a WNBA standpoint that salaries can increase for the women where that they don't have to go overseas to play ball, uh, you know, in their off season. Um, but uh, I, I just hope it continues to progress and uh, that all the rules within CAA and the things that people are dealing with, you know, with the, I guess the likeness stuff and the, transfer portals and all that. I'm hoping that some of that can get under control, but we're just praying that the game itself continues to progress. And I think the women are going to continue to get better in all of their sports. Give me your thoughts on name, image, and likeness. Um, you know, I've been out of coaching since 12 and I don't um, probably stay on the, the internet a lot relative to all the, the stuff that's going on, but I'm old school. And, you know, when we went to school back in the day, of course, you didn't even have scholarships and we found a way to get to school. And I think a student athlete that's on a full scholarship, um, 
you know, that that's a privilege and a blessing there. Uh, I think it's just personally that it it can go the wrong way if uh, if everybody's not getting something similar. Uh, I, I'm, I'm concerned with that and all the social media stuff. If kids are looking at their, you know, their phones all day long and reading all the stuff that's going on there, there's so much negative on it. Um, so I, I don't know where the limitations would be. And since I'm not in the meetings, it's probably not fair for me to say, but uh, I feel, I, I know that salaries with coaches and all of that is, is at a point where a student athlete would say, why am I not getting a, you know, a cut here? Because everybody else is making a lot of money and the programs are bringing in so much money, but somewhere there's going to have to be restrictions because it's, it's still like the rich are going to get richer uh, as far as your bigger programs, the ones that have the money that are bringing it in are going to be able to pay players and are going to be able to, to do the likeness stuff uh, or have opportunities that other schools are not. So it's going to still be the same problem relative to a smaller school trying to keep up with the Joneses because they're not going to have the resources. So I, I think that the committees that are in a position to make those decisions really have to consider some kind uh, of rules or standards that it just doesn't get out of hand. And the transfer portal is the same thing. It, I mean, maybe the concept's good initially on both of those things, but there has to be some kind of limitations uh, because you're now with that, you're also having to re-recruit the kids that you have every year and players that you're depending on by their junior or senior year if something's not going their way, even after their first year, then they can leave. So uh, I think that that's two areas that the NCAA or whoever will be involved with that um, have to consider putting some kind of cap on it. You left here. You ended up in the SEC. You had a long uh, stretch as a, as a head coach in, in the Southeastern Conference. Uh, did you always keep up with how Chattanooga was doing? I, I tried as best I could. I, the class that I recruited at UTC, the year that, that I left there to go to Kentucky, when they were seniors, uh, they were playing at Marshall. And I took roses to them for their last game up there uh, to see them. And so there's uh, the players at UT Chattanooga that I coached. I, I still call a bunch of them on their birthdays of when I have numbers for or send Christmas cards to to some that I have the addresses for. And, and it's been great to get back to the reunions. I haven't been to a lot but when I was coaching, but since I've been out of it, you know, I've had the opportunity to do some things that I've never been able to do, which is to, you know, have flexibility and schedule a little bit. But uh, it is really important to keep in touch with the, the, the UTC family, uh, as well as other families that I've been a part of. Um, so that is important for me to get back and uh, to keep in touch. And it's a very, very special part of my life that, uh, that, it is, that I love. And the people that I've been able to keep in touch with have been very special. Tell me about the first time you saw Regina Kirk play basketball. I probably heard about Regina Kirk, you know, through Charlotte Robinson was an Oak Ridge player. And uh, I guess December 2nd is her birthday. She transferred to us from East Tennessee and uh, played probably a year and a half or so, then ended up playing 
in a semi-pro team up in maybe Wisconsin or somewhere up north. But anyway, Charlotte said, you got to see this kid. And um, Jill had done a great job. And uh, Coach Berkey, they had, they had really had great AAU programs or, and, and developed those through the years. But we had several, you know, Oak Ridge kids through the years. But Regina, uh, and she'll tell you this, of course, so when, she, when you got the ball to her, uh, and she was smaller, but she just had an uncanny ability of getting the ball around people and getting her shot off. And, and what I love about Regina was just how hard she played, how much she loved the game, and how she wasn't scared. She wouldn't back down to anybody. And, that, and I think she appreciated the fact that we got her the basketball. So if you have two shoulders to the ball, you get hands to the ball, you're going to get the ball. And she knew how to score, you know, around the bigger players. But she's, she's, her competitiveness and her confidence, I love that spirit in any player. And she, Regina had that kind of fight and is just one of the best offensive players that, that I coached along the way. Did you know Karen Mills would end up a comedian? You know what? I can tell you that I, I really thought that she could because Joe Hobbs, now we didn't have a bus for a long time. You know, we were driving the vans. But even if I was driving the van, you, you know, you would, you would drive, what, three or four hours to play a game. You'd play a game. You'd go through McDonald's and get a quarter pound with cheese, small fry, you know, a medium Coke, and it was two eighty nine, dollars something like that. And then you'd have to drive back that night. Well, the kids were all asleep and you'd be sleepy. Well, Karen could sit up there and tell jokes <laughs> and keep you awake while you were driving. Um, but, and then when we got the bus, Joe Hobbs was our bus driver. And Joe, he, he worked with the clown unit, with the Shriners, but he told jokes. And so, and that's where Karen got that story hissing in the pit. You'll have to ask her about that, but that's where she got it from was Joe. But she would sit up front and she, they would tell stories and tell jokes. And so uh, I knew she had a passion for entertainment. And one of the first things that she did for us when she was probably a, a student assistant is we had a meet them. I guess it was a meet the mocks um, thing for all of our sports. And Coach Wilkes allowed us to put on that show, so to speak. And it really was good. You can... Roy Exum, I remember, I think he was maybe our MC, but he would, he would remember uh, that, that production. But Karen did that for us, and uh, we all were involved in women's basketball and putting that on. And then she, she's, it's sort of like Dennis Haskins, you know, he went, he went to the West Coast and he wanted to be an actor, and, and he did it. Well, Karen decided she wanted to be uh, a comedian, and she did it. So... I'm proud of her, and uh, I felt like that that was a calling for her, and she's done a tremendous job with it. You know, one of the amazing things, and Tate and I worked on a, a project last year on Scrappy Moore, and we talked to so many guys that had played football for Scrappy, and it was, it was amazing the post-athletic careers they all went on and, and had. It seemed like they all ended up having a lot of success in in their professional lives once they once they got out of college how much satisfaction do you as a coach take in that in seeing I don't you know Regina does a lot of nonprofit work uh you know Karen's been very successful they're not the only ones 
that that you coach that have gone on and and done good things how satisfying is that for you I think that's part of it you know as a coach we're helping develop young leaders and that philosophically you know again it just carries over from the teaching perspective and I always told players as recruited you you know you come here because this is the right academic institution for you and I know we've changed a lot through the years in terms of how the recruitment process is but I always wanted it to be a place that this is where this is the best academic situation for you and when we started out it, it wasn't I guess an understanding we're all so young and, and a lot of the players coming in everybody's going to be a coach so to speak go through physical education but it's definitely changed through the years and but one of the most important things is where are you going to be five or 10 years from now, I would always ask that question. What do you want to do? Where do you want to be? And, and as we started out in Karen's time, because she was one of the first, the young ones there um, uh, when I first started coaching, uh, it, it has evolved, I think, into you can go to, into anything you want to be as you go through athletics. And it doesn't have to be you're going to go into to play basketball just to be a basketball coach. Uh, but that's that's the most important thing is where are you going to be five or ten years from now? Are you preparing yourself for success later on? And um, so hopefully that's been a point of emphasis as we started coaching and as I finished my career is helping develop young leaders in that whatever they choose to do, that they can be successful and pursue your passion. And um, I hope that I hope that that's something that all of them understood and knew that we were trying to support as we coached them. When you look back on it now, is there a, I don't want to say a game, is there a moment in your time at Chattanooga, whether it was a, as a player or as a coach, is there a moment that stands out to you? I think, you know, several moments were when we would, could win the Southern Conference Championship at the end of the year. Anybody that, that coaches or competes, then you, you know, want to win every game that you play. Uh, and so those, even though a couple of them were unofficial championships, those are important. We played NC State on New Year's Eve. This is a different one on the, um, I guess it was New Year's Eve, and it was, they were ranked probably in the top, they were second or third in the country, and we had almost a couple thousand people there on a, on a New Year's Eve game. In fact, we fed them after the game, but I can remember the official, Judy Coble. We played softball against each other and with each other, but she was the official. She made a call from the other end of the court right there. And I, it was opposite side. And she made a call where somebody stepped out of bounds. She said, Denise Powers stepped out of bounds. And it was right in front of me where I was standing, you know, on the sideline. Uh, and that stands out because we got beat by a point or two. And I still kid her about making that call from so far away. Um, I think the, you know, getting to the, the finals of the NIR, WNIT at the time, and we played Vanderbilt. And, and Murray Arnold had put, when, when Russ Shaney was there, they ran up play we call rotation, and he was a four position, and they ran this play, but he screened away, got a down screen, went up top, and was wide open for a shot. Well, we, we ran that play for Tina Chairs, and Chris McClure uh, was the one that set that down screen for her. But anyways, we got to the finals, and uh, we got beat by Vanderbilt, but that was the first time we'd ever flown. And so that was that was really a big occasion for us to fly to Amarillo, Texas for a tournament since we had never flown before. And it was a really special time for us. 
but those are, I guess, standout things. And we beat Arizona when they were a ranked team. Uh, to get to beat a top 20 team was a real important, you know, sort of highlight. But the main thing, I guess, is just seeing all these young ladies as they finished up and the special moments are hearing from them and some of them as you see their families grow through the years and just what they've done. Um, those are very special memories as well. Now, did you get a chance to take a team to the NCAA tournament? No. At the time I was coaching, uh, there were 32 teams in the women's tournament and the Southern Conference did not have an automatic bid. And so therefore we did not have that opportunity and we weren't selected. Uh, so we, that's, we, in 84, we had that opportunity for a, the WNIT. And that, at that time, I think there were just eight teams in it. And they went to Amarillo for that particular tournament. And they had run that tournament for several years. So anyways, we did not get to go to the NCAA. And it was up into the 90s before that it went expanded to the 64 teams, uh, where that the you know, a lot of the smaller conferences were able to, you know, have automatic bids. Thanks to Coach Fanning for giving us some time. And it's always a treat to hear her and her stories about those early days of the program. Now, Jim Foster can tell you stories about the early days of women's college basketball. The Hall of Fame coach had a tremendous run here at Chattanooga, his last stop on what was a very long and successful coaching career. And we got the chance to catch up with Coach Foster down in Athens, Georgia one day. Here's our conversation with Jim Foster. Can you kind of talk a little bit about what that piece of legislation has meant for women's athletics? Yeah, man, if I go back, I look back. Um, I start, 44 years ago is when I started. So Title IX was maybe five or six years old at that point in time, but it wasn't, you couldn't visually see or even feel the differences in my opinion. But gradually over a period of time, we were, we were, my first year at St. Joseph's, we were in the AIAW. We weren't, NCAA didn't show up until the next year. And then uh, when they showed up, we went from being a regional school, uh, playing a very competitive schedule. Uh, but the teams we were playing that were good were Montclair State and, 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 uh, Central Connecticut or Southern Connecticut or just schools that weren't weren't that big. And then maybe six years into it, we ended up in a league with uh, Penn State, Rutgers, West Virginia, and Pitt. Now, I think Penn State probably spent more on office furniture than we did on our travel budget. But that was the league we were in. And as a result of being with them, scholarships started to evolve and we went from having some uh, tuition scholarships to getting and working our way towards uh, full room and board and tuition and probably about eight years into it it's when it sort of in my opinion took its first huge step what was that huge step eight years into it well playing them you know playing we had at that time, 
I think it was a six-year run where we were the smallest school in the NCAA tournament. We had 2,200 students at St. Joseph's. It's a much bigger university now. But then, you know, we're playing Penn State with 30,000 students or whatever they had and at West Virginia, at Rutgers. Um, different world. Uh, and it, to adjust to that world. And we adjusted pretty quickly because we were very competitive and, and had a lot of success within the framework of that league. Uh, but you knew it wasn't, it wasn't going to last. I mean, what, what do we have in common with large state universities? I've, I've had this conversation before with, with Andy Landers, and I, I'd like to hear your, your take on it. Was there a moment for you when you knew women's basketball had arrived? Yeah, was there, I, Andy uh, Landers talked about, you know, having games on national television with, you know, CBS or yeah, whoever yeah. broadcasting. Uh, I think it was a Georgia Tennessee game back in the, in the mid eighties is he kind of felt at that point, like, okay, as a sport, we have arrived. Was, is there a moment like that for you that stands out when you, you think back, uh, yeah. you know, not just over your career, but over the, the gradual climb of, of women's basketball since the 70s. Well, mine's a little more personal than that. You know, Andy, who's a very good friend, uh, and I'm sitting in Athens, Georgia, as I speak to you. Um, my moment was when I could give up two of the three jobs I held to be able to do what I wanted to do. Um, and my salary increased to the point where it could actually uh, start to make a living, earn a living, without doing things, uh, bartending, uh, resurfacing tennis courts, uh, running a restaurant in a in a Ocean City, New Jersey, for a summer. I mean, the the list is endless. Uh, so I, I would say, when when you were allowed to pursue what you wanted to pursue and make a you know, I did work for the Jesuits, so it wasn't a fortune, but it was enough to have one job. How did you get into coaching women's basketball? I was an assistant um, at Bishop McDevitt High School boys for two years. A friend of mine uh, from high school had hired me. I was still in college. Um... He had a car accident, had to give his job up of, of coaching, and uh, the athletic director at Bishop McDevitt approached me from the girls' side and asked me if I'd like to coach the girls' team, be the head coach, and I jumped at it because I went from being the assistant boys' coach to the head girls' coach. And then three years later, St. Joseph's called and asked me if I'd be interested in coaching their women's team. And that started the ball rolling. Was it, was that the, the plan for you uh, to, to coach women's basketball? Or was it just, I just want to coach and it, it doesn't matter where or what? The latter. You know, I, 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 I didn't think twice. What, what, what appealed to me is being the head coach and making, you know, those kinds of decisions. Uh, and uh, 
Yeah, actually, the second year I was there is the year I, uh, I hired Gino Oriema. Uh, so we were together two years in high school and then one year in college, three years total. Uh, and, and when we were doing that, I don't think either of us thought to the future and what it turned into. And if we had been thinking those thoughts back then, I'm sure we would have been certified uh, as crazy. But enough, enough good things happened and enough, uh, we were both sort of stuck it out and in different directions and uh, look back. Were you fire. ever tempted or did you ever consider, you know, you hear about a men's job coming open somewhere. Did you ever think I, that maybe I'd like to try that? No, I was approached and talked, you know, a couple of different times by people about situations and it, it did not, I had too much invested in what I was doing. Um, and I had a young family and I thought, uh, I was very comfortable doing what I was doing and that the, the other side didn't entice me. Thanks to Coach Foster. It was great to see him again and glad to see that he's uh, that he's doing well. It's time to take a look now to the future. Laura Heron, she is the senior women's administrator here at UTC. She is also the longest tenured employee in the athletic department. So if there is anybody that has seen the transition happen on this campus for not just the athletic department as a whole, but for women's athletics as well. It's been Laura Heron. She was kind enough to give us a few minutes from her office to talk a little bit about 50 years of title nine. Laura, we always like to start with, with how somebody ended up here. Um, so your story, how did you end up at Chattanooga? No, it's, Ironic that Title IX actually did bring me here to uh, Chattanooga. I was a, a head women's trainer at a small school in Florida, Florida Southern, who were also the moccasins. Um, and at the time, Title IX had uh, created some positions opening up in the Chattanooga Athletic Department. So they hired a, a new head softball coach, a new volleyball coach, and an assistant athletic trainer. And I got that position as assistant athletic trainer to come in and take care of the women's sports. So back in 1994, I came to Chattanooga. So you were the, were you the first female athletic trainer they had? Well, yes, uh, for full time. We had had graduate assistants before and uh, a lot of student trainers that came through that were female, but I was the first overall assistant athletic trainer full time on staff. So well, first female staff assistant trainer are you now now that mike royster has retired does are you now the longest tenured employee in the athletic department i am the oldest rat in the barn that is for sure uh i start my 29th year july 1st things have changed since 1994 haven't it they has it has uh you know these days when our students come through they don't really real, realize the significance of title nine and how uh, it really enhanced opportunities for women. Um, when I went to school, I was a student athletic trainer uh, at a Division II school with West Georgia. You know, and when the bus took off, we had peanut butter sandwiches that you ate to, to go on the road. And we stayed four uh, girls in a room uh, on the road. And uh, these days, you know, we make sure that our female athletes are treated the same as the male athletes. Uh, 
and they appreciate those opportunities. Yeah, I was going to say, you see Title IX at work every day now. Uh, the biggest benefit of it that you see? Uh, the biggest benefit is, is access uh, for the females to, to, to play sports. Uh, we've added a lot of female sports uh, during my tenure here. We started uh, women's soccer. Uh, we restarted women's golf. Uh, we just recently started beach volleyball. So it brings in some more females to show off the talents they have. Can you kind of, uh, and, and we've done this before with, uh, with Mark Wharton a, a couple of times, but I'd like to hear it from you. Uh, can you put Title IX into words? Can you explain it? Because I feel like a lot of people have a real misconception of exactly what it is. Sure. It, it's a really, it's a good law. It is intended to make sure that the females are treated like the males. Uh, they always said, if you want to look to see if somebody's in compliance, look at their softball field and their baseball field. It's usually the baseball field was picked out, had lights and everything, and the softball field was, was just dirt. So Title Line came in, it's making sure that, you know, you give them the same level of facilities, they get the same treatment in the training room, uh, in the equipment room, in academics. So anything you're doing for your male population, you need to be doing for your female population. Look ahead now. I mean, you, you talk about going into, well, I won't say the year, but you, going into another year at, at Chattanooga Athletics, what do you think is next for women's athletics at Chattanooga? You know, we still have some growth to do uh, in women's athletics. Uh, I would love to see all of our sports fully funded in scholarships, fully funded in the coaching staffs. Um, we really work hard and, and on the most part, or make sure we are funded in the top third of our country, but you know, we, I'm sorry, our conference, but we would love to be leading our conference and making some strides uh, nationally. Uh, softball just won our conference tournament, got to go to the NCAAs, you know, gave Alabama a great game, uh, won a game in the tournament and faced Alabama again. Um, I think we just keep building on what we built here. We're going to get to where we can make splash nationally. How does that happen? It takes a lot of hard work. It takes some money. Um, we're doing a big construction project right now on the arena, which is really going to enhance our facilities. Um, our training room is the same today as it was when I first got here. All we've done is uh, painted the walls and put some new carpet in. Uh, and we really needed to enhance that. So the addition on the McKenzie Arena, we'll do a brand new training room for all of our athletes. Uh, it's gonna give us some more space here in the arena. Um, the ones most cramped are our football coaches. Uh, they have small offices and they might have two or even three people shoved into one sometimes. So it's gonna give us some more space. When they get space, it's gonna open it up for our other sports and coaches. Uh, so facility and recruiting good students and being able to uh, provide them the scholarship to come here, uh, get their education, but also give us the great competitive uh, teams. You mentioned beach volleyball. That's that's a sport that it feels like nationally continues to, to grow and explode. And, and locally, uh, it feels like that program kind of took another step this year. Yeah. It, it did, you know, our, our first year of competition, we got to one tournament and then COVID shut us down. Um, and so we just uh, came back the next year and really made a mark. Now we're an associate member in the whole Ohio Valley Conference because uh, the Southern Conference doesn't sponsor it. But, you know, we made a splash there and, and our, our coaching staff was named coaching staff of the year. 
Um, and that was with no scholarships. Uh, all we had are walk-on or volleyball players on scholarship that were playing beach volleyball. Uh, and so we're, we're growing that sport for the first time. We'll be offering scholarships uh, this coming year. Uh, not enough, but we're building that way. And uh, if anybody wants to donate some money to the athletics department, we would appreciate it and give some more uh, scholarships for all our athletes. How did you as a department, and I, and I assume you were kind of the one that in your role as senior women's administrator, you led the charge for this. How did you arrive at beach volleyball opposed to other sports? You know, during the, uh, my tenure here, we, we've done different ways to find sports. So uh, we, we stay on top of Title IX. We actually had a Title IX complaint back in 1991 that created my position and, and kind of enhanced our other women's sports. Uh, at that time, we, we added women's soccer because it was just, you know, a very thriving sport and it was sport in our conference. So that was added. Uh, when it came time to add women's golf, we actually put it to a vote to the campus. We were going to add a sport that made sense uh, geographically for us. Uh, we gave them the choice of uh, bowling, rowing, or, or women's golf. And the students voted, and they voted in women's golf. So when it came time this time, it was actually student-driven. We had two students reach out to the athletics department and say, hey, why don't we have beach volleyball? We should have beach volleyball. And so we investigated and determined that that would be a good sport. The next one for us to start uh, to help us maintain compliance with Title IX, uh, we're mentioning or meeting the prong of uh, continual uh, enhancement of women's sports, adding sports, uh, and so that's how we got beach volleyball. Was uh, two students reaching out saying we should start it. Have you ever thought about what athletics, college athletics, would be like if we didn't have Title IX? Uh, we'd be back to maybe two or three sports for women. Um, we'd still be eating those peanut butter sandwiches, uh, on the bus going there or crammed into vans. Um, you know, it just, it equals the playing field, uh, for everyone. Now, you know, if our guys were eating peanut butter sandwiches and staying forward in a room, that's fine. That's, that's equal, but that's not what was happening. And so now, uh, Title IX is, is just helping to, to equal that, that playing field. Talk about the transition for you from being an athletic trainer and then moving into the administrative side of the athletic department? Sure. Um, the NCAA has a designation called senior woman administrator. So every division one school has to identify the person that is your top administrator, which is a female. Uh, and so in 1997, uh, I was given that designation. It used to be with a coach. And they decided they wanted to be more of a staff person because, you know, it's hard for a coach who's doing their sport to focus on administration. So I got that designation. Uh, and we were still in the middle of our Title IX complaint, our monitoring. So it was kind of like we had the complaint in 91, and then we had to do a 10-year-long this is what you need to do to say you've complied with Title IX. So we were in the middle of that. So I actually had to go to Atlanta to the Office of Civil Rights and, and meet with them and say, what do we need to do? We had to do our monitoring reports to them to show that we had uh, fixed the problems that were identified from that 1991 uh, complaint. So since then, you know, I try to be the expert for the department. I stay on top of, of what the uh, 
federal government puts out with guidelines for Title IX. Um, I track our, our participation. Uh, ideally, your student athlete population is supposed to mirror your campus population of full-time undergraduate students. We are currently around 59 to 60% female student here at UTC. Uh, and so to meet one problem of Title IX, we need to be about 60% female student athlete. Well, when you have football, um, that's not really possible. So that's why we've added uh, a lot of women's sports to try to get our numbers up um, and why we continually look to see if there's other sports we could add that, you know, you have to be able to fund and support um, to make sure that we stay in compliance with Title IX. So it's something that's, that's daily uh, on my mind. When we look at, you know, do we need to add a coach here or there? I'm looking at, well, how does that uh, add with Title IX? You know, we can't just go ahead and give the football team a million dollars, do what you want to do, and not make sure you give some of that to the female side as well. Now, you know, as I understand Title IX, it's in, and you mentioned it, it's, it's related to the student population, male versus female. The athletic department has to reflect that. Is there anything about coaching? If you have, how does coaching fit into that in terms of, and by coaching, I mean numbers. Is there a number of coaches that you have to provide? So the NCAA sets limits of how many coaches you can have. Uh, per team. And so what we look at, that's called fully funded in coaching. So with uh, football, you're allowed 11. Uh, in basketball, you're allowed four. And so what we do is we look to see on our men's side and our women's side, are we meeting those limits uh, with everybody? So it's kind of, uh, we just pick, so I said football goes against uh, softball. So we make sure we have the full complement of coaches. So we may not have as many coaches on the women's side, but we have our sports are equally funded in who has enough. Uh, we do have some other sports that still need more. Uh, both of our tennis teams do not have an assistant coach currently. Uh, it's equitable, um, but it's an issue. But if we're going to fund an assistant coach, we need to make sure it's done for both teams so we don't have more on the men's side than on the women's side. As we wrap up personally, what would you like to see now for women's athletics at Chattanooga, I mean, you talked about the facility upgrade and, and a better, better training room, and, and those things are important. What would you like to see for women's athletics at Chattanooga? I'd like to see uh, the attendance and the excitement grow because there are some great product out there that, that people may not know about. Uh, we've now had beach volleyball for two full years. Um, not everybody knows we have it. Uh, we built some sand courts behind Eagle Stadium. So if you come out and watch that one time, you're going to be hooked. We have a really good softball team playing at Frost Stadium. You know, I would love to see that stadium full so we could, um, you know, enhance what we have and, and build on that. Maybe put a video board out there at one time. Um, our basketball programs are, are both going to be um, really good. Uh, if you're buying season tickets for the men, bomb for the women and come watch both of those. Laura, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Chris. Thanks to Laura for giving us some time. Thanks to Coach Fanning and to Coach Foster.
Thanks to our producer, Tate Johnson, for making all of this uh, happen and putting it all together. And we hunt in the sports information office for her help and preparation uh, for these interviews as well. And thanks to you for being with us also. Appreciate you listening every single week to Mox on the Mic. We'll be back with you again next week. We've got another episode coming out on Thursday. We look forward to continuing to bring you the stories and to celebrate more highs of Chattanooga Athletics. Appreciate you being with us this week. I'm Chris Goforth. This has been Mox on the Mic. Until next time, so long, everybody, and go Mox. Thanks for listening to Mox on the Mic. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review, and we'll see you again soon.